It's Aspen Ideas to Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. Historically, when new forms of media arrived, such as newspapers and television, there was concern. But with the emergence of the internet and social media, the threat of social harm is real, says Tristan Harris. He's a former Google design ethicist who founded the Center for Humane Technology. We tend to have this, this narrative that technology is just a neutral tool and we can do whatever we want with it. And I'm here to tell you that that is completely not true in the case of the technology that we have right now because it's purpose-built and designed to capture human attention. Aspen Ideas To Go brings you compelling talks from onstage events hosted by the Aspen Institute. The Institute is a nonpartisan forum for values-based leadership and the exchange of ideas. Today's discussion is from the Aspen Ideas Festival. Two point two billion people use Facebook. One point nine billion use YouTube. Millennials check their phones a hundred and fifty times a day. Why are we so hooked on technology? Tristan Harris says it's because companies like Facebook understand how to capture our attention. Such persuasive technology can also modify people's behaviors, attitudes, and beliefs, says Harris. What's the result? Digital addiction, political polarization, election manipulation, and loneliness. Harris begins today's talk by giving some context about the dangers of today's technology. Then he sits down with journalist and author Charles Duhigg, who admits he's a skeptic about just how dangerous technology is. Here's Harris, who sets it up. I actually think this is the most important topic in the developed world um, because it's the issue that's beneath all of the other issues or many of the other issues that, um, that face us, existential challenges that, that face us. Um, so uh, what I want to do first is roll a one-minute video just to kind of prime the pump and get you contextualized and then we can get into it. You want to roll the video? I check my phone a lot. More than I can count. I check it usually when I wake up in the morning. Playing a game. Liking pictures. I'm constantly checking my phone until I go to bed. I think it's a mixture of everything that's on social media that makes it so cool. Stories or bitmojis or gifts. Teens want to try out the new feature. They want to be on the cutting edge of the technology that's coming out. There is a lot of pressure to present um, a version of yourself that's close to perfect. If I'm doing my homework on my laptop, I might be you know, intermittently checking my phone. Sometimes if I just get too bored of my homework, I might play like Candy Crush or something. I feel like I'm distracted a lot. I procrastinate a lot. I have definitely been emotionally affected by social media, maybe even depressed. Um, but it's hard to say which causes what sometimes. I sometimes wish that it wasn't a thing so I could just hang out with my friends and play basketball or do other things like that. Okay. So um, this video is from a, a campaign with Common Sense Media. How many of you here know what Common Sense Media? Uh, so they're the largest kids advocacy organization uh, for around uh, kids and, and screens and privacy and things like this. And we have a campaign called The Truth About Tech which is about how and why all of what you just saw is happening. So um, let's be clear, throughout history, human beings have had moral panics about different forms of media, right? So we've, we worried when people started reading newspapers on subways, oh my god, people aren't going to talk to each other anymore. And we worried about radio, and we worried about television, and 
Um, we always worry about children playing video games. I played video games. So with that in mind, I want to convince you that even despite those things, it's a this time it's different situation. Um, and to give you my background and why uh, I come to this or how I come to this, when I was a kid, I was a magician. And the reason that's important is that it gives you a very different worldview about human nature. Instead of seeing human beings making their own free and independent choices, you see the world as a magician in terms of the vulnerabilities of the human mind. How can you hijack or manipulate choice? If you can control the attention of your spectator and use body language or emphasize certain keywords, you can predict or do mentalism, you can predict what people's thoughts are. Um, so there's these sort of invisible rules of human minds, and so that was my background. And then flash forward, I was at Stanford, I was a computer science major, and I studied at a lab uh, called the Persuasive Technology Lab. And uh, it was run by a professor named BJ Fogg, and he basically trains young engineering students uh, in how to apply persuasion to technology. Is it possible to modify people's behaviors, attitudes, and beliefs through technology? And this is actually in the year before the iPhone. This is in 2006. And my project partners in that class were actually the founders of Instagram, who are friends of mine. And there's many different alumni who basically went on to careers in Silicon Valley. And what it teaches you is a set of principles that let you do everything you just saw in that video. Because we tend to have this, this narrative that technology is just a neutral tool, and we can do whatever we want with it. And I'm here to tell you that that is completely not true in the case of the technology that we have right now, because it's purpose-built and designed to capture human attention. What is the business model of, of Facebook or of YouTube? How much have you paid recently for your Facebook account? Zero. And the reason is because their business model is to capture your attention and then to sell it to advertisers. And they have a whole bunch of techniques that are almost like magic tricks on the human mind that work on any mind to get people hooked. So it becomes a race to basically addict people because let's say you have 30 minutes of people's day and you're YouTube, right? You've, currently you're accessing 30 minutes of people's day. Um, even if you don't want to grow that 30 minutes into more of, of people's time, um, to hold on to that 30 minutes, there's always more competing sources of attention every year. So you have to get more aggressive to even hold on to that 30 minutes. So used to be I offered you the product, and now I have to crawl deeper down the brainstem and addict you to it. I have to create that unconscious habit, that twitch, that, that, that itch. I have to check the slot machine. Um, in a TED talk I gave five years ago, I gave the metaphor that your phone is literally a slot machine because every time you pull it out of your pocket, you're playing a slot machine to see what kind of reward I got. Whether it's I got a text message from the person I love or the person I'm just excited about, or I got a notification of 15 um, likes from a friend. So we're kind of dosing people with variable schedule rewards in timelines that are unprecedented for human history. So if you think about social validation and approval, all human animals care about social validation and approval. Um, but we've never had a situation where 100 million human teenagers are getting dosed with social validation of 10 likes, 15 likes, 12 likes, no likes, 4 likes, every 15 minutes. That's unprecedented. So let me take a step back and, and, um, and, and ground this. Um, one other thing I want to say about magic is 
the insight about magic is that it works on all human minds. When I did magic as a kid, I was uh, six years old. And the interesting thing is you could fool adults with PhDs. And it didn't matter what language the audience spoke or what age they were, these were universal facts about human nature that you're tapping into. And so that's why when I talk about what I'm gonna talk about the next few minutes, I want you to see this as an existential threat because we are living inside of a mind meat suit body thing that has certain backdoors and vulnerabilities that you cannot totally be in control over. And being aware helps, but the point about magic is it works on everybody. It's like a chimpanzee doesn't get to choose whether a banana is attractive to it. It's got too much evolution that says that that's attractive in the same way that social validation is attractive. Uh, let's go through some of the techniques that are used um, to get people's attention. If you are uh, a magician, one thing you might pay attention to if this was a glass of rosé, is something called a stopping cue. Uh, naturally speaking, when people are navigating their environment, they're making choices, there's these moments where there's a stopping cue. The conversation ends with the person you were just talking to, and your brain wakes up and says, okay, what do I want to do next? Those are stopping cues. They're very present in our natural environment. If you're drinking a glass of rosé, there's a stopping cue, it ends. Let's say I wanted you to not stop. What would I do? I just remove the stopping cues. And so that's exactly what YouTube does. Uh, basically removes the stopping cue when the first video ends. They added just in the last two years an up next feature, which basically says uh, in a time you know, countdown, five seconds later, it'll autoplay the next video. If you're Instagram or Facebook, you'll rip out the bottom of the newsfeed and make it so it keeps filling up with more stuff at the bottom. There's actually a study from uh, the, I think, Cornell University that if you sit down six people at six different bowls of soup, and you have um, them eating soup, but two of the bowls have a tube at the bottom that's refilling the soup uh, automatically as they're drinking it. The question is what people notice, and they, they don't, and they consume about 76% uh, more soup. And so it's not like this is harming someone, but we are able to pull on the levers of what ends up happening, what choices end up being made, and how people make sense of the world. Okay, so now let's take a, a zoom back. So, where are we? So there are 2.2 billion people who use Facebook. That's about the number of notional followers of Christianity. There's 1.9 billion, as of just a couple days ago, New York Magazine, uh, people who use YouTube. 1.9 billion. That's about the number of notional followers of Islam. People check their phones about 150 times a day. Millennials do. Uh, and from the moment you wake up in the morning and you undo your alarm to the moment you're going through and your phone rings. Uh, uh, the moment you go through your day, uh, you know, the hundred times you go through your day to the moment you go to bed and set your alarm, you've, you're completely jacked in. So imagine a nice, big, sturdy jack in the back of your brain where the moment you wake up and you do this, I've got you jacked in and thoughts start streaming into your mind. And if you're a teenager, you do this and suddenly I've got photo after photo after photo of your friends having fun without you. Right? I can do that to you. That's what, that's what Instagram is. I'm not saying that's deliberate. I'm just saying that's, that's the experience of, of the feed. Um, if you're Snapchat, I can basically hook you into a false sense of social obligation. Snapchat has a feature called Streaks. How many people here know what Streaks is or it's children who use Streaks? Okay, a fair, a, some, some small number. They've demoted it in the last year actually because of the public awareness work in some ways I think that we've been doing. Uh, Snap Streaks basically, if you don't know, shows the number of days in a row that two kids have sent a message to each other. So next to each one of your friends, imagine you just like 
if you open up text messages, and instead of just seeing their name and then you tap and you can type a message back, it forced you to see the number of days in a row you sent a message. So it's like putting two kids on two treadmills, tying their legs together with a string, hitting start at the same time so they both have to keep running, because if one doesn't, the other one falls down. And this is being done to 100 million uh, teenagers. So we have this insane world where we're all being behavior modified uh, on a daily basis using techniques that are borrowed from you know, these kinds of conferences and labs that are about persuasion and addiction. And the first externality is simply addiction or public health and loneliness. Because the more addicted you are, the more I have you checking in at, in the night, the more lonely I have you in the evening. And I was just talking with uh, Vivek Murthy, the former Surgeon General in the United States under Obama. He was saying um, that he actually thought loneliness was a much bigger epidemic and a root of epidemic underneath even the opioid epidemic. And that technology was rapidly feeding that. And so if you care about these issues, just to ground first that the addiction creates this sort of loneliness mental health thing. Then you have political consequences. Because on top of this system, which is designed to capture people's attention, uh, instead of just little streaks and bottomless bowls and things like that, you then have automation. When you open up a Facebook news feed, you think you just are seeing the last 10 things that your friends posted. But there's actually literally millions of things that they could show you that are across the whole network from your friends and posts that they've commented on other people's posts. There's this huge variety of things. And out of that, they pick these are the things that are going to keep you here hooked. And YouTube similarly says, if you didn't know YouTube, about 70% about of YouTube's uh, traffic and views come from recommendation. They come not from people typing in a video and clicking on a video and watching one video. They come from the up next autoplay recommendations. So if you think about 70% of what people are watching on YouTube is driven by automation, calculations about what we should show people next. And because of this goal of capturing people's attention, uh, it has to select, the thing it's going to select to play next for you is the thing that will most likely keep you on YouTube for the longest amount of time. So think about your mind is human evolution 1.0, and then you like step into YouTube, and you activate a supercomputer that's literally like the, one of the, there's, what are the biggest supercomputers in the world right now? They're inside of Facebook and they're inside of Google. And they're pointed at two billion people's brains, and they're basically, when you step into YouTube, it's playing chess against the chessboard of your mind. So if you think about what happens, the reason I say that is it's trying to figure out what's the perfect video I can show you. So when I say playing chess against your mind, what I mean is, do you remember when Gary Kasparov played chess against um, Deep Blue, IBM Deep Blue, and he lost? Why did that happen? Because Gary is living inside of a, you know, the best human mind that we've got who knows how to play chess. And he's predicting and seeing all the possible consequences downstream of all the possible moves. And he can see so many moves ahead. And that's what makes him the best chess player in the world. But when he plays a computer, and the computer can see way more moves ahead, it's checkmate. It's game over. There's never going to be another human that's going to beat computers at chess. So now you have uh, 1.9 billion human animals dropping into YouTube. And a supercomputer is activated to play chess against their minds, asking the question, what's the perfect video I can show you that's going to keep you here the longest? And that's why when we go to YouTube and you say, I'm going to watch this one video, and you wake up two hours later being like, what the hell just happened? You were playing chess and you didn't even know it. So the biggest problem is not that we're losing our time. 
it's that we're losing control. Human agency is inside of a control loop of we, see, we use our eyes to discern what's real and true in the world, and then we navigate and we make choices. But we're pointing automated AI systems, supercomputers, at our brains to fake out what we believe to be true, either with fake news or with deep fakes. How many people here know what deep fakes are? Um, great, okay, so deep fakes, I feel like I'm introducing many concepts. Deep fakes uh, are when you can actually generate videos of any person saying anything. So you can, you've probably seen these videos online, you see Obama or Putin um, mouthing and saying with their own voices anything, with a small sample of their audio. So there's no way that inside of a human mind, it's like bringing a knife to a space laser fight, like you're trapped inside of your apparatus. Imagine a mouse, and you're a human, you look at a mouse. You know you can outcompete the limits of what a mouse can think and do and discern what's true and navigate and choose. Well, we're like a mouse to massive supercomputers. Okay? Now, the political consequences of this are the most alarming, and I think we'll get into the Q&A in about five minutes. Let's talk about a lot of this are that there's an intrinsic bias towards conspiracy theories, radicalizing content, and divisive material. Because if I'm YouTube and you airdrop a human animal into YouTube and they, they land, and they're on a 9-11 news video, a regular 9-11 news video, uh, we are a team of former technology insiders that um, one of the former insiders that's joined our team is a former YouTube engineer. And he's done this massive analysis, finding that YouTube has a systemic bias towards taking people from a regular sort of point of view into conspiracies. So a regular 9-11 news video, if you let the autoplay play, the up next, right, autoplay, two videos later they're watching 9-11 conspiracy theories. If you drop a person into a um, dieting video, a teen girl into a dieting video, two videos later you get anorexia videos. If you drop a, uh, a person into a, uh, so this also exists on, on Facebook, by the way, because they're recommending groups to people. Like, what groups should you join? Do you remember back in February 2017 when Mark Zuckerberg said, we have a new mission, we want to bring the world closer together with groups and community. The problem is, so they started, rec so they started recommending more groups to people because they wanted you to join groups. So if you're a mom and you join a mommy group, what are other groups that moms join that are really engaging, that are good at keeping people on Facebook for long amounts of time? the anti-vaccine conspiracy theory groups. So systemically, we have automated systems driving what two billion human animals are being led into and thinking and believing, and there's no one home because it's not as if there's someone inside of YouTube who wants this to happen. It's not as if there's someone inside of Facebook who wants this to happen. It's automated systems pursuing a naive goal of whatever's engaging or captures people's attention. And it's producing everything from uh, you know, a doubling rate of teen suicide uh, for, for women in the last eight years from 2007 to 2015 to radicalizing um, conspiracy theorists. So there's uh, the YouTube example. YouTube recommended 15 billion uh, suggestions of Alex Jones' InfoWars conspiracy theory videos. It's 15 billion. So we have this situation where this system of mind influence is jacked into all of these people in languages that the engineers don't even speak, and then in particularly sensitive markets like in Myanmar or Sri Lanka, you have a genocide being amplified because the engineers may not even speak the language while recommending engaging but fake or fake news videos um, that basically amplify ethnic tensions between the Rohingya in Myanmar um, and, and the non-Muslim groups. 
So the consequences are incredibly vast and serious, and the question is, how do we regain control of this? And so that's what I hope we talk about. We started a little nonprofit called the Center for Humane Technology. We work on advocacy, and um, there's actually been enormous progress made in the last two years on dealing with these issues. But what I wanted to convince you of is that this is an existential threat that's outpacing the human control loop of, of our choice-making and our sense-making capacity. And it's already running. It's not a philosophical conversation. It's actually steering world history right now. Um, and, uh, and we have to fix it. So that's the conversation I'd love to, to open up for all of you. It's Aspen Ideas to Go. Thanks for listening. What does the future look like for women in positions of power? Last month, our sister podcast, The Bridge, released an episode featuring journalist Erin Carmone and lawyer and author Linda Hirschman. They talk about Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg and how her leadership has changed the country. She is a supremely deliberate, cautious, by nature person, but who sought radical ends. She imagined a world that would be far more equal. That is an inherently radical thing to ask. Carmone explains the dichotomy of Ginsburg's radical decisions and rational leadership style. Find the episode, Fierce Integrity, Erin Carmone and Linda Hirschman, on your podcast player. Let's get back to today's show. Charles Duhigg, author of The Power of Habit, joins Tristan Harris on stage. Here's Duhigg. So let me, let me start, if you guys don't mind, with just a little bit of a poll for everyone in this room. Think for a second of the, uh, the last morning you woke up in your own bed. That was earlier this week or this morning. <clears throat> How many of you in this room, within the first five minutes of waking up, rolled over and kissed the other person in bed with you? Might have been your spouse, might have been someone new, we're not, it's this non-judgmental zone, Aspen is a don't ask, don't tell. So raise your hand if you kiss the person. Okay, okay, good, good number of hands. You guys are, are, are good spouses. Um, now, next question. How many of you within the first five minutes of waking up rolled over, picked up your smartphone, and checked your smartphone? Before or after the kiss. Before or after the kiss, either one. Okay, good. some more hands just went up for this. So, so if you have a more intimate relationship with your phone than the person who's sleeping next to you, then it, it's at least worth having this conversation, right? Yeah. So here, here's my question for you, Tristan. I think everyone in this room, the, because of what you just said and, and because of our instincts, would agree that this is an issue, this is a problem. What is the solution going forward? And I'm going to put this in a particular historical context, which is in the early 1900s, the New York legislature passed a law that made it illegal to speak while crossing the road. And the reason why this was actually a very wise law is because automobiles were just becoming popular and people basically hadn't learned how to have a conversation and look for cars at the same time. And so lots of people were getting hit by cars because they were talking to their partner. Now, the idea today that any of you would even think it's unusual that you can have a conversation and look for a car while crossing the road probably never even occurred to you as a really unique skill you have. But the human brain learns to adapt to the technology of our environment. What has to happen so that our kids or our grandkids look back at this panel and they say, do you know that people thought it was a problem once? Like these phones are a problem? They, it's crazy that they would have thought it was a problem. Yeah, so this is basically the, the idea or argument that um, 
we will, um, by becoming aware of these issues, be able to use our technology better. Simply, we will we'll grow out of this phase and um, it'll be fine. The reason I don't believe that's going to happen, um, so it, it's sort of like if Gary Kasparov becomes aware when he didn't realize it that he was playing chess against a computer that saw more steps ahead, he can't win that game, right? So on that side, that's a big issue. So we have AI pointed at our brains. We didn't talk about advertising, but the Facebook advertising engine and Google advertising engine and Russia's ability to manipulate those systems um, or any foreign actor's ability, these are all part of that same process. So that's the AI side. On the even just the personal persuasion side, I think we underestimate how persuadable we are. Um, so social validation and approval are incredibly persuasive. I mean, I still use Facebook, and if I post something, it feels really good to know when I got new likes on the thing that I just posted. And I work on these topics full time, and I know exactly how it works. And even the, my professor at the Stanford uh, Persuasive Technology Lab, BJ Fogg, said that uh, even though he knows how all of this stuff works, it doesn't change the fact uh, that it works on him. It still influences him. It's kind of like, you know, if you put on a VR helmet, right? So if you put on a VR helmet, uh, virtual reality, and I can know consciously there's no ledge right here. This is not a cliff. I'm sitting in Aspen. This is a stage. There's nothing here. But if you pushed me, I have millions of years of evolution that tell me I can't fall, right? And so uh, there's not... That, that's what we're up against. We're inside of this kind of virtual reality environment of these, these products that are incredibly persuasive at drawing on our deep evolutionary instincts. And I don't think we're just going to wake up from it. But there's a, there's a distinction between saying people like likes and then saying, but they do it to a point where it becomes bad. It becomes bad for the environment. It becomes bad for myself. You use Facebook. I, how many people in this room use, have checked Facebook in the last week? How many of you just became like rampant racists right afterwards, right? How, are, you, are you a rampant racist? No. Okay, okay. Just making sure. Because you spent some time on Facebook. I'm guessing that the folks in this room aren't going to throw away their phones. And they're not going to start using Facebook. And frankly, I don't think it's a bad thing to say, when someone likes my thing, it makes me feel good. Now, anything in excess is bad. Where do we draw the line between something that is part of life and something that we should genuinely be worried about. So one thing is on social validation specifically. And my friend Justin Rosenstein actually invented the like button at Facebook. He's one of our advisors and a friend. Um, and he feels a lot of these, there's been articles written about his um, tensions in having invented this thing. I think specifically because of um, developmentally, if you looked at teenagers uh, and kids, uh, it's very tempting when you're at that age to think that being a friend of this person um, I mean, we're much more vulnerable when we haven't worked out our own identity to getting that validation from the outside. And if you just imagine, and that's always been true, by the way, but if you imagine how frequently and how interruptively we're given those doses now, the timeline of social validation is, is incredibly frequent and, and unprecedented. Um, similarly, I think what worries me about the Snapchat example is the fact that it starts to take over the meaning of friendship. If I'm a kid, I think that being friends with my friends means that I have to be there for them. But if you can text me like 200 times a day, then I have to, being a friend with you means I have to interrupt what I'm doing 200 times a day to, to demonstrate that I am friends with you. So it's not that that's a bad instinct, it's that it's too developmentally sensitive. I think for kids, that's one issue. For adults, yes, social validation feels good, but for example, could Facebook and the other platforms batch and digest you uh, all of the notifications once at the end of the day? 
It's a trivial change to make. Um, and that would actually help create a different timeline that would open up space for these kinds of things. So let, let's figure out why that's not happening. How many folks in this room um, have set your email account to send you emails just twice a day? Batch them up and just send them twice a day. No it, it, it's, it's pretty straightforward, actually, right? You can, you can... Actually, it's not straightforward. There's no way to do that. But, the, but, but if you want, if you wanted to, there's, there, I've done it. This, I do it. There's an app that'll do it for you. It'll it take you, it takes you about seven minutes of Googling to figure out how to do it. But, but it's a little complicated. How many, okay, so let's say, let's say we put up right now the instructions for it. How many people in this room are going to do it right now? Gosh, that's not many hands, right? I guess, I guess what I'm getting at is I'm a little skeptical that the problem here is tech companies forcing something on us that we don't want. I actually think what's more likely happening is that people want this thing, right? And there have been concerns about developmental influences of technologies for years, as you pointed out. I grew up in the 1970s. I came home, I watched TV every single day. And there was a huge industry to, to, that existed to tell me that my mind was being ruined. I was never going to be able to re read a book. If we're looking for solutions that don't rely on people doing things that they don't want to do, what can tech companies and what can users do well, to try and lessen the impact of this in a negative way? I think the issue, though, is that most people just don't understand how they're being manipulated. Um, I, I was on 60 Minutes um, a year and a half ago, and the whole frame, the title of the episode was called Brain Hacking. Um, <laughs> When you talk about manipulation, people think, oh, those people over there, they were manipulated by Russia, but like, I'm the smart one. I'm, you know, Jack Dorsey, the CEO of Twitter, retweeted Russian propaganda. <laughs> Donald Trump has retweeted Russian propaganda. Um, it, it, again, in magic, we tend to have this Don, Donald thing. Trump loved retweeting Russian <laughs> propaganda. He had no problem with it. We, we tend to think that, that we're the immune ones and other people um, you know, are, are not vulnerable. I don't think people even realize that they're being manipulated. So how, people in this room, how are people in this room being manipulated in, in the last month, and what should they do to remove that manipulation? Well, why, if people are being manipulated in a way that's publicly harmful and is generating a loneliness and mental health epidemic, um, then is the answer that it's just about personal responsibility and slowly waking people up as we erode the fabric of society, or should we say, we need to change this from the top down we need to change. So when I was at Google, by the way, my background in this is I became a design ethicist. So I was a tech entrepreneur, had a small startup. Google acquired our company. I uh, joined Google as a product manager. And a year into it, I became kind of disenchanted. And I knew all this stuff about persuasion. And I, made it, I was thinking I was going to leave the company. And I felt uncomfortable at the direction of the tech industry. I made a presentation saying that Google had a moral responsibility in shaping 2 billion people's attention because of the fact that people's minds can be manipulated and that we were creating a channel for other people to manipulate it. I made this presentation in 2013, it was a slide deck, and I sent it to 10 people for feedback, just by email. Um, if you know Google Docs, it shows you the number of simultaneous viewers in the top right. So when I came to work the next morning, there was 150 simultaneous viewers of a presentation who I only sent to 10 people, and it spread virally to up to 10,000 people in the company, and became kind of a moment of reckoning that we, that is back in 2013, by the way, before Cambridge Analytica, before, addiction, internet addiction were big things. Um, and, and people agreed that there, there was a moral responsibility. And the reason we couldn't get anything done is because the, there was a belief that the public didn't necessarily know or care or understand yet. And so I tried for two years trying to change things from the inside and could not do so until this public conversation happened. And this year, 
Google just launched something called a well-being initiative that basically helps people set more screen time limits on their phone. Late at night sets your phone to grayscale, so you can basically know when you're kind of getting late and make, it makes it easier to fall asleep. Uh, Apple matched their well-being initiative just recently with a screen time initiative that they're launching that helps parents set limits on, on time limits on their phone. Facebook adopted time well spent as the goal, design goal, for many of their changes that they're trying to, to make in the company. So uh, those things, I would argue, had only happened because people were aware that they were starting to be manipulated by these things and, and had enough. We're going to go to questions. And so if you have questions, but, but before we do, as you're thinking of your questions, so let me ask, we're in a room uh, uh, filled with people who are apparently lonely and being manipulated in ways that they don't understand. What should everyone in this room do to end this mental health crisis that we're, we're suffering from? Well, I, I think it's tempting because this problem does affect everybody personally to think that the only solution is what we can do for ourselves. And I think people underestimate that these systems are changeable. So the reason I keep going back to let's change the companies is it's like saying with climate change, let's all just individually buy some solar panels or something like that. And that's the only thing we can do. Like we're not going to solve that problem unless we change the global energy infrastructure and start reweighting all of these things, right? We, similarly, this is like climate change for the, for the human mind, for democracy. Um, and we, we have to have solutions that, that speak to it at that scale. So there are things you can do personally. You can set your phone to grayscale. Um, basically, if you, why would you do that, by the way? If you set your phone to grayscale, every time you look at your phone, you see colors, and those colors uh, are kind of like a mini slot machine. It's like lighting up the excitement part of your brain. And there's a way you can set your phone to grayscale and it kind of subtracts some of those addictive qualities. You can turn off notifications. But when I talk about that, notice that we just left this big existential frame of corrosive conspiracy theories baking in billions of people's minds. We, we, we lost track that this is an existential threat. Um, and it's an existential threat to the way that we're seeing the world and making sense of it and feeling our own self-esteem. So if we just talk about notifications and grayscale, we miss the, the greater point. Let's go to questions. Uh, Ma'am, right here. I'm wondering if your work is making a distinction between an iPhone as a technological tool versus just social media being very detrimental. An example is um, my phone is definitely my alarm clock. My phone is my music in the morning. It's my notepad when I need to remember something. Yeah. At the same time, I'm unique. As a young person, I have no social media and haven't had for 10 years. Are you making that distinction between an iPhone as a tool versus social media as being bad? Yeah. So um, really important. Um, what There needs to be probably a better word for this, but what I'm, what's really the problem is persuasive technology. When you use Notepad, there are not a thousand engineers behind the screen trying to manipulate your mind into writing the note that they want you to write and then creating a bottomless bowl and then using your social psychology and saying, your friends are also writing notes right now and they tagged you in this note and don't you want to go help them on that note, right? That whole thing, that's persuasive tech technology. That's a, that's a different field. And, and the key difference is that when there are these thousands of engineers on the other side of the screen trying to manipulate your mind, if their interests were aligned with yours, like imagine the world where all those thousands of engineers at Facebook went to work and said, uh, we know based on your behavior patterns, which they do by the way, um, they can predict with high accuracy whether or not you're feeling lonely. And instead of saying all these goals are let's keep you hooked for as long as possible, um, or you seem the same thing, they said, hey, we, have, we actually know all of your other friends who are here lonely as well, and we could try to make it easier for people to be uh, going out with each other. And so it's, it's not the device, 
But Apple and Google, by making the device and not really uh, realizing that there are these manipulative techniques, that they have a responsibility in sh shaping the dynamics. In the blue, in the blue um, shirt right here. I work with uh, children, and every day I pass the bus, bus stop where there must be about 75 high school students, and not one is talking to each other. They are all texting. How is, going, how is this affecting language skills, um, social skills? It has to really be affecting it. Um, so Sherry Turkle is one of the leading experts on that topic. She's a sociologist at MIT. She's shown that um, basically it does, um, it atrophies people's ability to do face-to-face -face, um, empathic recognition, like really understanding facial microexpressions and um, feelings of empathy between people. And I think that we have to recognize, again, what is human nature? I mean, if you had a lever right in front of you and there's two billion people going down a track, if you pull that lever, uh, two billion people get all their social community from virtual screens. And if you pull the lever the other way, you get two billion people who get all their, their community from face-to-face -face interactions. Like, which one would you choose? Like, we're not built to have our social relationships entirely mediated by screens. We're just, we're just not built for that. We need the FaceTime. Uh, let's, let's come over, over here. So Tristan, as you were talking, I was thinking of the tobacco industry. And I'm thinking, can we learn from that experience? Um, meaning that we already know what happened there. You know, the US government used to provide cigarettes to the army folks in the army and whatnot. And it wasn't until much later than they realized, you know, the effect it was having lung cancer and whatnot. Yeah. Should there be, you know, um, warning signs that appear everybody every time someone picks up a phone or goes to social media that says, you know, be aware that this could cause, you know, brain cancer or whatever it's going to cause, whatever we yeah. think it's going to cause. I love that idea. I, I would love to see how Apple designs warning this product might be. So the other, thing, the other thing I want to say is that, you know, we are talking about everybody doesn't get addicted, but this is the first time that children have had access to anything from pornography to violence to you name it. Yep. This wasn't there in the case of cigarettes or alcohol. This is unprecedented. Totally. So I kind of agree with you, Tristan. And the global scale is, is un unprecedented. Um, the, um, so obviously, it's, it's by putting notices or informational warnings in front of people, that's, that's, that's not the, the, the thing that's going to solve this. Uh, the world that we're advocating for is what we call humane technology that actually respects and honors the society that it's, that it's interacting with. So currently, if you think of attention as like an ecosystem, so in other words, just like any ecosystem in nature, attention, um, like resources have to flow in certain places. So if you're a parent and a child, attention has to flow between parent and children, right? But if you take the attention economy, all these companies come along and their business model is advertising. And when they look at that attention, no matter where it is, they're like, I gotta chop that thing down, so I'm gonna drill into the ground, start pulling the attention out of that parent-child relationship. Start pulling that attention out of that uh, 6 p.m. window on a Tuesday night when people might make social plans but instead addict them to spending time on the screen. And they're just sucking attention to all of these ecosystems because it's profitable and it's not honoring the, humane, the human environment. Same way with conspiracy theories. Um, so we, we have to, I think of this almost like a green or environmental movement for our humanity. And it's like a spiritual reforestation project or something like that where um, we, it's not that technology is going to solve, magically solve the problem, we're going to build new apps. It's that we need to redesign it so it's not it, this sort of open-ended, um, maximize the ability for people to addict people uh, and steer their beliefs and manipulate their minds. And so long as we have the business model of advertising, 
that's what all the companies are incentivized to do. Because Facebook and YouTube are competing to be the best place for billions of dollars of advertisers to spend their money, which means in the long run, they have to be better at offering more precise manipulation tools. And that's, that's a fundamental conflict with democracy. Im imagine a priest in a confession booth who listened to two billion people's confessions. And they listened to your conversations outside the confession booth. This is Facebook. And they had a supercomputer next to them processing two billion people's confessions to predict confessions you don't even know you're going to make <laughs> accurately. And then their entire business model is to sell access to that confession booth to someone else. It's not that priests and confessions are bad. You would just want the inter I mean, there's some issues there. You, 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 you wouldn't, though, want a society where the business model of those priests is to sell access to the confession booth. We're, to use your tobacco analogy, it's as if advertisers were paying for everybody to get addicted to, to, to tobacco, where people didn't actually buy the product. It was this other group that was funding tobacco to get just tossed on the whole, on the whole environment. I just came back from Cannes um, in, in South of France with the Lions Festival with all the advertisers and CMOs, and I said to them, look, when there's a public health crisis for children and a breakdown of democracy around the world, someone's going to ask the question, who paid for all of this to happen? And the answer is going to be the people that were in that room. So we have to get off this advertising business model. Let's take one more, sir, then the green. It's, it seems like becoming a parent now has gotten much more complicated with the technology. Do you advocate parental controls and limiting the amount of time that children can spend on their devices? And if so, at what age? And what seems to be reasonable guidelines for how long a child should be allowed on the machine? So, so to that, um, I don't have lots of specific recommendations for what parents should do, unfortunately. Um, I think, you know, I'm not, I'm not a parent myself. Uh, I fundamentally believe that developmentally, you know, when, before the age 13, I mean, even up to higher ages, it's, it's too sensitive, I think, a, a situation for kids to be on social media. And I wish that wasn't the case. That doesn't mean people shouldn't be communicating or something like that. But I do think uh, presenting our photos first, beautification filters, the fact that these companies are incentivized to um, make your photo look even more beautiful, which creates more unrealistic standards, which then more people are comparing themselves to, all of that is just too toxic for certain developmental age ranges. So I, don't, I can't tell you the specific ages and what I recommend. Uh, I do think that limiting screen time is overall a good idea, and it's great news that Apple, uh, luckily, and, and Google are starting to move in this direction. Um, so I would check out those, those initiatives and come tomorrow. But before we wrap up, I, I, I do have one, one more question I want to ask, because I'm, I'm, I'm somewhat of a skeptic on this, and, and I, I think it's really good that we're having this conversation. I think it's good that technologists are having this conversation. I think it's good that users are having this conversation. I think you're doing a real public service by, by pushing the conversation. I am skeptical at, at how concerned we should be across the board on this. And the reason I say that is because for two reasons. For, first of which is that we've seen a lot of people bring up concerns before about technology that have proven and without accenting what's positive about technology, right? The Arab Spring happened because of social media. There are, I do a lot of reporting in the Middle East and in Africa. There are millions upon millions of lives that because of smartphones have been transformed and women have been empowered in ways that 
were unimaginable two decades you know, and, ago. And tools are great, right? Tools are great. I mean, Steve Jobs said, what is a computer for? It's like a bicycle for the mind. I am all for tools. We have an adversarial attention economy that's purpose-built to suck attention out of the places it needs to so go. I think that's going to be the problem. I think it's unlikely, though, if we go to, to Facebook and to Google and say, you guys should get off the advertising model, they're going to say, great idea. We're going to start doing something else to make those billions every year. I do think that there is a conversation around this about how we as consumers and we as executives and technologists can design better products mm-hmm. that, don't, that don't have to destroy our economic model, but at the same time respect our users. And my concern, and I want to give you a chance to respond to this, is when I was reporting in the Middle East, I saw the power of taking a small fear and making it big. Mm-hmm. And it, it, ex- it exerted itself again and again and again in causing people not to get vaccines because there was a conspiracy theory that they were using vaccines to hurt us. I saw it in Iraq again and again and again, the conspiracy theory that there is a vast system that takes advantage, that manipulates us. And so we cannot trust these large organizations, whether it be the US military or the government or the Iraqi military. Why, tell me something from your message that doesn't, doesn't require me, that, re, that allows me to see these technology companies as my partners in solving this rather than an adversary. Because I think if they're my adversary, I think they're gonna win. So. Um, you know, in medicine, there's the Hippocratic Oath, do no harm. Um, the reason I don't highlight all the positives, I think people are very familiar with the positives. And I think that the, the positive intention mission statements, I mean, a lot of the people that built these things are my friends, by the way. I mean, so, um, and, and I, all the people that I've known in the tech industry who work on all these products are good people trying to do what they're doing. And yet what escaped them was this blind spot, this, this, the missing humility of are we steering billions of people into conspiracy theories? Are we creating a public health crisis? That was not acknowledged until this counter pressure was there. So just to back up why this, this negative pressure is important. Um, back to this, this do no harm point, I think that if you say we should do no harm, it's been kind of, a, uh, kind of a sexy thing to say in the industry right now. It's like, oh, we should adopt ethics. Ethics is now the sexy, cool thing to do. It's do no harm. That doesn't mean anything because they think for the longest time that there was no harm. These are just neutral tools. We're not responsible for how they're used. We can't predict what people are going to do with them. And that proved not to be true. So a much deeper moral standard is something like the, the golden rule, right, where um, you, you, would give, you would design the product that you make and give it to your own children as is without changing any of the default settings or downloading the cool email bundling apps or whatever, and you're happy, you're enthusiastically handing the things you make to your own kids. In that world, I would think we would get, that's, that's how technology companies could be our, our, our allies. Right now, notice that in Silicon Valley, all the executives don't let their kids use technology. I've spoken and I've been invited to speak at schools in Silicon Valley where their parents send them to Montessori schools, uh, Waldorf schools, where they, they're not allowed to use technology until much later. And so I think it's very simple. Let's just hold you know, ourselves to the same standard that we're giving and dosing two billion people with. And that's not saying with an accusation, that's just saying, wouldn't we want to live in a world that way? There has to be a full loop kind of you know, view of, I, I'm responsible for the consequences of what I create. Thanks, Tristan. Yeah, thanks. Thank you all so much. Have a great idea, festival.
Tristan Harris founded the Center for Humane Technology. Previously, he worked at Google, where he developed a framework for how technology should ethically steer the thoughts and actions of people from screens. Charles Duhigg writes for the New York Times Magazine. Their conversation was held in June of 2018 at the Aspen Ideas Festival. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow Aspen Ideas year-round on Twitter and Facebook at Aspen Ideas. Listen on our new website, aspenideas.org. Today's show was produced by Marcy Krivenin and recorded by our team at the Aspen Institute. The Aspen Ideas Festival programming team is Kitty Boone, Killeen Bretman, Katie Cassetta, Libby Franklin, Brett Howley, Jonathan Melgard, Jamie Miller, and me. Our music is by Wonderly. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for joining me.